be the last Sunday in August feels like New Year's Eve because the new year is about to start. You know, so January is interesting, but it always feels like kind of mid-year celebration. For me, this is New Year, so it's, it's great to be with you on New Year's Eve. Um, my understanding is uh, over the last few weeks, uh, you've been looking at Luke, and uh, Jesus was asked this question, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he responded to the young man asking him, or um, uh, an expert in the law said, well, what does the law say? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the stories that follow begin to unpack what does it mean to love our neighbor and to love God. And so the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan immediately follows um, you look at the story of Martha and Mary, which is almost the uh, mirror image, right, of the Good Samaritan, that on the one hand with the Good Samaritan, um, loving well means sometimes if you're a priest or a Levite, stopping what you are doing to help your neighbor. And then Mary and Martha give us the opposite side. Sometimes you're so busy helping people, you're not paying attention to the voice of God. And the two stories kind of hold together to say both of these cohere. And then you get to the section of scripture that we look at today. And let me read it again. And as I get to the prayer, um, I hope you'll pray it with me as we hear it. Right? So one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, presumably because as they listened to Jesus praying, they thought, I want to pray like that. I want to have the kind of um, intimacy and meaningful conversation with God that you seem to have, Jesus. So teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples to pray, give us something that would be distinctive to our movement that would reflect your priorities, but more importantly, your understanding of God. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. I want to suggest that this prayer is actually a continuing exploration of what does it mean to love God in the way that we converse with him, in the way that we listen to him, and the ways that we respond to him. And as the title of the sermon suggests, it actually orients our entire lives around God. Because, um, do you remember falling in love? That's right. Um, and do you remember how it, com for those of you who, have, who don't remember, you should talk to somebody over coffee. Um, and if you're married, maybe you should talk to your spouse a little bit. Um, but, but if you remember... The, the um, experience of falling in love, and then particularly the experience of then committing yourself to that person. For those of us who are married, um, how fundamentally it begins to reorient your entire life, doesn't it? So um, everything changes. There's um, uh, an Andrew Lloyd Webber song that my children are rather fond of from a musical called Love Changes Everything. And it's true. Um, I remember when my wife and I first got married, um, for the first I mean, it was like a week or almost month. Um, our lives were being radically reoriented. We'd gotten married a little later, but I remember like constantly like, we'd turn around in our apartment like, oh, you're still here? 
right? I mean, all of a sudden, your, your sense of space changes because this person is there all the time now. And, it, and I don't know about you, but that was fundamentally reorienting, disorienting for me. You begin to find that your interests begin to change. The things that you're concerned about suddenly grow broader. So all of a sudden, I'm asking questions about, oh, what are the research priorities at this hospital? And what's happening with the internal politics of these people I have never met, hope never to meet again? And right, all of a sudden, those become my concerns as well. Uh, my kids constantly ask me, why do you call um, our maternal grandparents um, mom and dad? They're not your mom and dad. They're mom's mom and dad. And I keep trying to, because, you know, they're young, and so for them, like, clear categories and boundaries are important. But I said, when I married your mom, they became my mom and dad as well. Right? Whether I want to recognize it or not, they are now part of my family. Right? They have influence. So um, everything about your life begins to change. Similarly, this prayer reorients us to God because it reminds us that in a love relationship, to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength requires a total reorientation of who we are. So how does it do that? Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit and use a little bit of the Matthew version of the Lord's Prayer because it's the one that's most familiar to me. Um, but I'm only going to do it with one word, right? The, the first line traditionally begins, Our Father. And just pause there. And in this sermon... Um, it seems weird to preach a prayer rather than to pray a prayer, particularly a prayer that we were taught and ordered to pray. So I'm going to say a little and then allow us to reflect a little and pray a little as we go. What does it mean and how does it reorient us that this prayer begins with these two words, our Father? Well, notice the pronoun. Now, some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, it's the beginning of school. This is grammar. I never enjoyed grammar. But the interesting thing about that pronoun is that it's the plural, right? Our father. It's the um, first person plural. The prayer does not begin my father. It's not about my God. It's our God. Immediately as you start in this orienting prayer, this reorienting prayer, it pushes you to understand that your relationship with God isn't just your individual relationship with God, but you are part of a community that has a relationship with God. In our conversion to Jesus Christ, it's not just conversion to him, but it's conversion to an entire community of people spanning across centuries, across time, in every geography and place. It immediately reminds us that our relationship with God is understood, experienced, and lived out in the context of the people of God to whom we've been called. And this is part of our reorientation because for most of us, particularly those of us who've grown up here in the West, um, we live in incredibly individualistic times. Right? Um, our lives are intentionally organized individually, so we achieve individually and we fail individually. We're defined by our names and who we are. The great journey of um, most Western stories is somebody leaves their community, strikes out on their own, discovers who they are, and then return back changed, right? It's the story of every Disney movie. Um, it's Belle who leaves her quiet little provincial town to strike off on her own to discover who she is, right? It's the little mermaid leaving her uh, school, a fellow mermaid. I don't know what you call a group of mermaids. Um, 
in order to, you know, go to a completely different world, a different culture, and discover who she is individually. You never hear stories in the West of somebody living in their community and discovering who they are as they define themselves in their relationship with their parents and their classmates and the other townspeople. It's always the individual striking out on their own. But the prayer begins, our, because God engages with us as a community. So as you pray the Lord's Prayer, you might begin to pray these kind of questions. Who else is praying now with me as I pray this prayer? If there are about a billion Christians in the world or more than a billion Christians in the world, I would imagine that every single moment of the day, there must be tens of millions of other people praying as well. What would, how would it change our prayer time if when we turn to God in prayer, we realized who are the other tens of millions of people praying right now at this very moment with me before the Lord? I would imagine right now in East Asia where it's nearly 10 p.m. at night, um, perhaps in the Philippines or Japan, um, there's a child beginning to pray his evening prayers ready to commit himself to sleep. Um, somewhere over um, Central Asia, I suspect right now, uh, as evening begins to fall, there is a mother sitting at the bedside of a hospital with her child, praying a prayer right now, right? Somewhere um, in Latin America, where it's now sort of noontime, there's somebody celebrating a family dinner together um, after church, right? Um, enjoying the fact that grandchildren and children have come together and they're eating together. And when we pray right now, we can celebrate with them. Right now, as we pray, somebody in Hawaii has just woken up and they're having their morning devotions on Sunday. Right? Who are the other people praying with us right now? If you begin to pray that way, you're beginning to pray with the body of Christ and orienting yourself to Jesus. You might also ask the question, not just who are the tens of millions of other people praying with us in this second, but who is not able to pray with us right now? Um, if you're in Sudan, Africa right now, it is probably um, six, five or six o'clock in the evening. And you could be persecuted if you are a new Christian in that country. Who isn't able to pray with us in community right now? because it may not be safe for them to begin to pray publicly. Who are the people separated from family, friends, and church right now? I think of the prison ministry where um, people are isolated from community unless there's in intentional intervention, or um, in a local nursing home who are praying alone in their room right now. Right? If you begin with the first word of the Our Father, as our Catholic brothers and sisters would call it, um, it orients you to God, who's not just my God, but our God. And, and the important part of that reorientation is it begins to decenter our needs, our wants, our desires, which God cares about and God is engaged with. But it challenges us to make our desires, our wants, and our concerns far bigger, far broader than they would be if we were just left to our own devices. The second word of that, well, the last thing I'll point out, our, of course, is that this is the one prayer that the entire church feels comfortable praying together, right? Across communion, across traditions, across uh, faith backgrounds, across centuries of conflict, the one prayer that we can all pray together and pray out loud together and join together is this prayer. It's our prayer to our Father. 
And it's fascinating to me that the next word Jesus chooses orients us to a particular kind of relationship with God, right? It's a familial family relationship rather than any of the other numbers of relationships he could have chosen. He could have chosen, like many tra uh, traditional Jewish prayers, right, um, Lord of the heavens. He could have chosen master and um, Lord, which is um, both an ownership as well as a business work relationship, right? He could have chosen great creator, the one who made us all. I mean, he could have chosen so many um, metaphors to guide our prayer, but this orienting prayer says the first relationship that drives all of the other relationships is that of father. And it's not primarily um, the, I mean, many people say, you know, Abba is intimate, and it is intimate, but not in that child, um, people said daddy sort of way, because um, there's a respectful kind of papa, dada, nature to it. It's intimate and close, but respectful at the same time. But I think what's key to us is that Jesus invites us to orient our lives around God, not as a boss who orders us into mission or a teacher who wants to instruct us or as a discipliner who tries to get us to behave better, but as Father. And if God is our Father, it begins to orient all of those other um, activities that he has in our life fundamentally around love, commitment, and a desire for our flourishing. Um, my older daughter is quite bored of me right now. She's almost eight. She'll be eight next week. And um, has hit the point of, you're dull, right? It, it's a little earlier than I'd hoped. I hoped I would have seemed dull to her by junior high, but she's fast, and so by eight, she's, she's a little bored with me. Um, one of the reasons she's bored with me is one of the things I say to her every night before I put her to bed and several times during the day is, Mato, I love you. Um, I will always love you. I will never stop loving you. And immediately when I go, Mato, I love you, she just rolls her eyes. Oh, I know. You say that all the time. Um, and I say, well, do you know why I say it all the time? Because you want me to know this. Oh, it's so boring. She's going to be a great teenager. Um, but I said, I want you to know that no matter what, I will always love you. And then every now and then, when she's more engaged in conversation and not just rolling her eyes at me, she'll say, but you, know, but you don't love me when you are angry with me. And I said, well, no, actually, I do, remember? I will never stop loving you. How about when I'm really bad? No, I will always love you, even when you're really bad. I won't like you right, as much right then. I'll be a little, but I will always love you. And we'll work through various scenarios. And she goes, well, why? And I said, because I chose to, because I'm your father. But part of the goal and discipline for me in saying it repetitively to her and to her younger sister multiple times a day if I can is to assure her, when I discipline you, I have not stopped loving you and I will always love you. I travel 25, 30% of the year. When I am gone, I love you. I will always love you. I will never stop loving you. When we're having fun, I love you. I will never stop loving you. I will, right? Um, and uh, my wife pointed out to her one day when Madeline was complaining, Papa is so boring. He says the same thing all the time. Um, my wife said, you know, one day your Papa will be gone. He will die. And you will be so grateful to have that be the voice that's in your head, right? Even when I am not physically present 
or able to be with her at that moment. She will know. And similarly, I think Jesus says, pray this way, Father. Because if our perspective, our orientation around God is anything less than him as our Father, it's so easy for us just to be busy for God, like Martha, if he's just master and boss, give me my next set of instructions. Right? It's easy just to be passive. I teach me more about you um, if he's just a theologian teacher who just wants to tell us more about himself. Right? He can be the angry God who's out to get you because you do bad things. Unless you think, he's my father, even when he's angry at me because I've disobeyed. He still loves me. Even when I cannot see him and he's, he seems distant, I know he loves me and he's there. Even as I learn about him, I learn about him because I'm fascinated with this person who loves me not because there's some test at the end I must pass, right? Ultimately, as we pray this prayer before God together, we're being reoriented to who God is and how he begins to relate to us. So Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. It's not just that our identity has changed, right? That we're part of a family that spans time and space with a particular father, but... This prayer orients our motivations as well. The next line is this, hallowed be your name. Now, at one level, it's a crazy prayer. God's name is already hallowed. Um, He is holy. He is the ultimate reality, of course. It's a little bit like praying as my younger daughter did, give me bad eyes so I can get glasses, God, which was her prayer for um, a year, my five-year-old, now just recently six-year-old. And we kept saying, you don't even need to pray for that. Because God is going to give that one to you whether you like it or not. Just genetically, you will have glasses. And, of course, she has gotten glasses in the last week and is delighted, which should last about another four days. <laughs> She'll be irritated that she used to wear them all the time. So why do we pray that God's name would be hallowed, that it would be holy, respected, and glorious? We pray that because our motivations are being reoriented this, by this prayer because God's glory should be our chief concern, like it's his chief concern. Because as you read through the Old Testament and the New, what you begin to realize is that God desires his own glory to be known. God desires for people to respect him, honor him, worship him, and love him. And it would be totally egoistical and egotistical for any other being in the universe to do that, right? Because nothing is more obnoxious than somebody goes, love me, respect me, adore me. Um, And if you aren't tired of it yet, watch the political campaign just a little bit longer. And you'll see how tiring it is. It's also exhausting when grandchildren or children do it, though we give them a little bit more space because they aren't mature yet. But for God, this isn't um, neediness or egoism or egotism. Who else in the universe deserves this kind of attention, awe, reverence, and love? It's God's chief concern. That's why the first commandment right, begins with, you shall have no other gods before me. It's why God describes himself as a jealous God to um, Moses in Exodus 31 through 33. It's why um, Jesus says, love the Lord your God is the first commandment. Everything begins there. You shall have no other gods before me. And so part of what praying hallowed be your name does is it forces us to confession and self-reflection, doesn't it? What other gods might I worship instead? And the reality is we're constantly given a tempting 
appetizing set of gods for ourselves to follow. Now, most of us um, are not so pagan or so casual that we bow down to an obvious idol, right? Um, that would seem a little strange in our culture, but when you consider all of the other idols that we're invited to worship, you begin to see how much more subtle they are. In fact, I think the best way to identify the idols that we want to worship is to watch a little bit of television. And it's not the programs I'm thinking about, it's the advertisements. Because the advertisements are designed to highlight which idols we're most drawn to. What are the things that you really, really want? But nobody really wants deodorant, soap, or shampoo on their own things. I mean, they're nice to have, but what do they appeal? What's the appeal of having those, right? The ultimate appeal made in those commercials is if you do this, you'll be accepted. You'll be welcome. You'll be young and beautiful, right? Our culture's idolatries are beginning to show themselves because nobody, everybody wants to be accepted, beautiful, in specific sort of ways. Right? If you watch other kinds of commercials around um, financial products or pharmaceuticals or insurance, right? What's, what's the idolatry they offer you? It's not that in particular we're drawn to financial planning, retirement planning, uh, or particular drugs. It's, I could be comfortable forever. I will be safe and secure, right? That ultimately, what is hanging in the back is, you don't want to not have enough, do you? Um, the idols of our culture begin to show themselves a little bit more. Um, think about the restaurant ads and the food ads you see, right? In the end, isn't every one of those, don't you deserve a little bit more pleasure than you have right now? You owe it to yourself to treat yourself to these things, right? The old gods of pleasure have manifested themselves in a different way. When we pray, hallowed be your name, part of what the prayer does is it asks us to ask ourselves the question, who else might we be giving our allegiance to other than God himself? What ads are most appealing and powerful in your life? Um, not only in our own lives, but in our culture at large, where else should we be jealous for the glory of God's name? Where else should zeal for his name consume us like it consumed Jesus? Um, the pastor of the church I attend in New York City just tweeted earlier this week, and it was profound, and it made me think and reflect. He said, one of the clear signs of idolatry is the refusal to embrace critique, whether related to country, church, business, self, uh, etc." Because he was reflecting on the culture around us, and he said, you know, the, place, the people who refuse to accept critique or criticism are demonstrating a certain kind of idolatry around their position, around their ideas, around their church, country, or self. He's partially reflecting on the, the bizarre series of um, comments on the Olympics, um, looking at the political campaigns around us, looking at movements and causes that people commit themselves to. And he thought, it's an idolatry in our lives if somebody from the outside can't say, you know, as I watch you on this thing, I'm concerned about something. I'm not sure that's quite biblical. And if we respond with, I can't believe you'd say that. I know I'm right. Perhaps some idolatry has crept in. As opposed to, show me in scripture what you mean. I'm open to be changed and criticized. Um, our Father, hallowed be your name, orients us 
to a particular position that says, no idolatry, whether physical or spiritual, emotional or motivational, will capture my attention like God captures my attention. No cause, no movement, um, no issue, no people group, no organization, no relationship will compete with you, God, for my attention or for the attention of the people of the world. So our identity gets reoriented, our motivation gets reoriented. Also what happens then is our activities are reoriented as well, right? Because the next line is your kingdom come. And part of what he, the prayer does at that point is says everything you do, now that you know who you are and what your highest concerns are should be oriented around this issue, may your kingdom come. And that in our lives, um, we are announcing and demonstrating that God reigns and rules, that God is in charge, that this is our ultimate business, whatever our business might be. In everything we do, somebody should say that's inexplicable other, if only, sorry, let me try that again. Whatever you're doing, somebody should be able to say what you're doing seems inexplicable to me except for the fact that you believe in a God who wants to demonstrate his love, mercy, truth, and holiness in this world. It should manifest in small acts of kindness wherever we go. Not random acts of kindness. They should be intentional, and they should be continual acts of kindness. Nobody needs random. Um, and it shouldn't be just because people think, you are such a nice person. You are so generous and kind. Because as soon as people praise us for being generous and kind, if they don't see God behind it, we're stealing glory from God. They're praising us rather than praising the Father. We have become the idol that they're worshiping rather than God himself. We become the snare. Good deeds are not enough. And so good deeds, small intentional acts of kindness need to be wedded to witness. Do we take the opportunity to name the name of Jesus when we're given a chance? Not obnoxiously, right? Not aggressively or confrontatively, but when given the opportunity, oh, that was such a kind thing you did. Do we say, well, I was just raised that way? Or I just felt like I should do something? Or are we willing to say... Um, Jesus is my model, and that's why I try to do these things. It doesn't come naturally. It comes in our intentional acts of kindness, in our witness. It will come for some of us in acts of protest. Protest for unjust issues that are occurring at our workplace where we raise a complaint. In InterVarsity, we just recently... Um, revised all of our harassment policies and related, um, uh, and related policies to that. And part of what we're trying to train um, InterVarsity staff is um, it's easier to be nice and not complain, but it would be unjust if you saw harassment occur and failed to say something. It would be more honoring to God and more honoring to Christlikeness to say what happened there was wrong and something needs to change than to just say, well, you know, let's not, ra let's not trouble the waters. Right? It'll be acts of protest in our workplaces. It may be joining with acts of protest around our country or on multiple issues, right? Rather the continual racial divides that we find ourselves in the country, unjust economic practices. For me, what I see every day, um, because I have children who are school-aged, are inequities in the ways that we educate our children. And when, at least where I live in Manhattan, it's so obvious how education falls out primarily around the economic status of parents because I can see it in the testing to get into um, kindergarten and I know I can see it in the testing to get into middle school. 
It won't just be acts of kindness, witness, or protest. It may be acts of choosing to create beauty in the world. Believing that beauty isn't just an abstract thing, but it's reflective of God's person. I think of a woman who lived in the prairies of the United States in the 1800s, and in one of her journals she once wrote, "Um, I make the quilts for my family warm so we don't freeze in the winter, and I make them beautiful so my heart will not break. And I think in the choice of creating beauty, she realizes um, it's not just a functional issue, it's actually something that reflects God himself. And it gives dignity and beauty and meaning to the things that we do so that acts of art will do it. I think for many of us, it's just showing up faithfully at work every day so that we can provide for our families is a choice of honoring God in our workplaces. It's choosing to be people who are reconcilers and truth tellers, people who extend grace and hold people accountable. Because, in part, we do this not just because we're nicer or more ethical um, or more moral than people, but we have a vision of a better world that Scripture tells us about, right? A world where people flourish as God intended. The the world that we live in is stewarded well so that all people flourish. We actually believe people are created in God's image and therefore worthy of dignity, respect, trust, and a way to flourish. One of the most... um, Regular conversations I have with college students when they say, well, you know, I don't think we need God to be good. And what I'll often concede is, you're right, you don't necessarily need God to be good. You can be a reasonably good person without a belief in God. But let me ask you, um, you seem concerned about justice issues and human rights. And, of course, they'll say yes and go, where do those rights come from? Why are people worthy of dignity or respect? If it's just we've agreed to it, can't I change that agreement later? Maybe the only people worthy of respect are people who can contribute a lot or work really hard if it's just social agreement. If you really believe um, in anything, um, do you think it's just fundamentally because we're highly evolved um, sets of chemicals that we deserve freedom or justice, freedom of the press or dignity? In the end, those come from scripture. In the end, you have to believe that God says, I made you with dignity, and it's defined elsewhere. Let me roll on uh, toward the end. Um, The prayer orients our identity. We have a father and a community. It orients our motivations that God's name be hallowed. It orients our activities around the kingdom coming. The last two phrases, uh, I think, are critical here. Um, Give us each day our daily bread reorients the illusion of independence for us. Um, By praying, give us each day our daily bread, this prayer reminds us that in the end, we are dependent on God and his goodness. The challenge for most of us, of course, is that we aren't in an obvious way. We're largely able to provide for ourselves by our jobs or through um, the social network that we have or through government assistance. We're able to put things together. And in fact, most of our education system is designed to encourage us to be independent, right? So um, even now, um, with my uh, soon-to-be first grader and third grader, teachers are saying, please stop doing work with them. They need to learn to do this independently. Back up. Back away. Um, Let them figure out how to do this. Um, The goal of education is both to educate ourselves, but ultimately to get a job so we can support ourselves, so that we can then um, repeat this with our children. But the prayer 
challenges us to pray, give us today or each day our daily bread. That everything comes from the Father. I remember, um, I, I think this hit me most graphically on an early mission project I took to China with InterVarsity. I was in my, finished, had finished my first year of law school, um, was headed for a, law, a job in corporate law, but led a mission project. And as we were in the southwest part of China, where, which was still quite poor at the time, um, I began to see in the marketplaces and the villages that we'd visit people my own age. I'd see, I would say boys, but men my own age, um, whose primary source of income was to have um, a little glass um, shelf. And on that shelf, they've had, um, sometimes it would be batteries and, or shoemaking equipment or pieces of fruit or pastries that they were selling um, as their primary source of income. And this was striking to me primarily because that was the job that my father's eldest brothers had when they were in the Philippines during World War II. The way they supported their family was every morning they'd go to a baker, they'd buy you know, a half dozen to a dozen pastries, then they'd go out to the business district of Manila, and in that little glass case, they'd have their little pastries so that as workers would go by to the office, they'd you know, buy something for a quarter or a nickel, and by the end of the day, they'd take all those quarter nickels, um, put aside the money they needed for the next day's purchases, and then what was ever remained was what the family would use to buy food um, for the family. And as I watched those young men my age doing the same thing that my uncles did 40 years prior, it forced me to ask questions like, am I really so much smarter than they are? Has my family worked so much harder than their family that I'm going to law school and will have a successful career in corporate law if I want it compared to them? Is it just work ethic or is it grace? Is it grace that my uncles worked so my father could go to um, high school and college and medical school? Is it grace that my parents worked hard in graduate school and immigrated to the United States so that I had the opportunities that I did? Is it grace that I went to a good school district and had every opportunity available to me in education and enrichment opportunities? Is it really that we worked so much harder or is it grace upon grace upon grace because save for a very small change in life trajectory, that could be me standing in the small town of China with pigs uh, moving around us with a small little glass case wondering if I could fix somebody's shoes so that I could buy dinner for my family later that night. I don't think I ever prayed, give us this day our daily bread the same way after that. That prayer took on different meaning as I moved to New York City and would ride the subway and when I would pray, give us this day our daily bread, as I was trying to pray the Lord's Prayer during my commute, I realized in this subway car there's a person who literally is asking for their daily bread right now and somebody over there who actually might control the grain harvest of several countries by the ways they invest. And praying, give us this day our daily bread, shifted my understanding and orientation around how economics works continues to shape me today. I was just talking to a pastor whose son is coming on InterVarsity staff and the father is struggling with the idea of fundraising. And he said, and I had mentioned in a talk I'd given at that church that I'd been doing this for 21 years. And he said, don't you think it's wrong? And I said, well, one of the reasons I think it's critical that I continue to do fundraising even now after 21 years is um, it reminds me my daily bread comes from the Lord. When I was a corporate lawyer, it was easy to believe my daily bread came from the law firm. And I just had to please the law firm in order to keep my job. 
which at one level was true, but it allowed the law firm to seem awfully a lot like my God. And I said, it may be that God thought I had so little faith that I was not, could not be trusted with a normal career and a normal income stream. He had to put me in a place where it was much more obvious every month, I, the Lord your God, will provide for you and will ensure that you have daily bread. I said, um, I don't know about your son, but um, God seems to need to weekly and monthly remind me. It's through him and his people that daily bread shows up at my table. And if nothing else, I can offer that to students. God is trustworthy and good. Give us each day our daily bread, orients our sense of independence, and reminds us that we're ultimately dependent on God. Let me end with this section then. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Um, This prayer then reorients us one last time around God who not only provides and provides a meaning for our activities, but ultimately defines our relationships. He reminds us that we're sinners and to constantly recognize our fallenness when, frankly, I know a lot of you, at least casually through my years here, you're all very nice people. You all seem very good and gracious. I suspect the people at your workplaces and neighborhoods think of you as model citizens. But the prayer forces us to confront I am still in need of forgiveness. I'm daily confronted by temptation, and without the Lord's help, I will not make it. I think the last thing it does, of course, is that it relates our experience of forgiveness with the forgiveness that we need to extend to other people. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. It reorients us into relationships which are inherently going to be broken, costly, and painful. It reminds us when we walk in the doors of a church and think about praying this prayer together that as nice and as kind and as exemplary as the people around us are, they are going to disappoint us and they are going to fail us. They're going to hurt us and wound us, not just unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally. And we walk in knowing that these are the people that God has called us to. And rather than pretend it doesn't happen or avoid it or escape it, it calls us to walk into these relationships here in this community and say, what you did I know was intentional and hurtful, and I will choose to forgive. Will you be reconciled to me? It reorients us to remind us that the body of Christ is broken, fractured, an embarrassment in many ways, and yet it's our body too. That we need to extend forgiveness and equally importantly ask for it when we've contributed to that brokenness and failure ourselves. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means allowing your entire experience of reality be reshaped and reoriented around who God is. He's our Father who loves us and places us as part of a giant community that spans time and space. It means that our motivations will be changed so that what we're concerned about is not my comfort or my health um, or my future, but God's glory in God's name. It means all of our activities will be devoted to expressing that his kingdom is coming. It means that we'll let go of the illusion of independence and go, I can trust you for something as basic as um, the starch I need to eat my meal 
for the relationships that I long for, for the future that I hope for. It means we acknowledge that we're broken people with broken people, trusting God and experiencing God's forgiveness and then extending it to the people around us. It orients every aspect of our lives back around God who loves us and who cares for us. If you remember what it was like to fall in love for the first time, to deeply commit yourself to somebody now, anybody who's been married any amount of time will also remember um, that adjustment period did not end after the first couple weeks. Um, my wife and I, even uh, our, our children are at Camp Grandma Grandpa, so we actually have time to to talk about something other than childcare logistics, which is amazing and takes a little bit of work to remember how to do that. Um, we're finding, we're constantly having conversations. What does it mean to, for me to more fully orient my life to show you that I love you? And it's shaping our aspirations, our ambitions, our day-to-day -day activities. I suspect those of you who've been married far longer than I have would say the same. I love my spouse. But every day, I encounter a stranger um, around who I need to orient. And for those of us who are not yet married or no longer married, you know that that's true with family and with the friendships and the communities that you belong to and you've committed yourselves to. Um, it's never that easy. It never becomes second nature. It's always a choice. And this is why I suspect the church throughout the world prays this prayer daily, if not multiple times a day. It's the constant, regular reminder to reorient ourselves in love toward the Father who has called us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the glory, now and forever. Amen.